Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Suella Braverman, she herself personifies the opportunity that immigrants can get in the UK, Liam. I think if the Prime Minister continues to back her and she does make just a little bit of headway, I think a lot of the public, they won't shout about it, but they'll thank her. Halloween and the witch hunt is in full cry. When you repress free speech, the people who benefit are the powerful, not the marginalised. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Six weeks ago, co-pilot, the Tories promised an era of high growth and low taxation. Now government insiders warn ominously of, quotes, a painful tax rise across the board. With inflation still in double digits, the cost of living squeeze is getting tighter. Now struggling firms and households are about to be hit with higher taxes too. In just a fortnight's time, Chancellor Hunt will deliver his House of Commons autumn statement. Well, that's something to look forward to, Alison. With the UK's <laughs> tax burden already at a 70-year high, it's about to go even higher. It's going to be rough, says my man with the Treasury throat mic. As the nation counts its pennies, government officials are struggling to count those crossing the channel in small boats. Our migration system is broken, declares our colleague Phil Johnson in Wednesday's Telegraph, and few are honest enough to admit it. One of those few is, of course, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, which is why, as you argue, Alison, the whole of the world, or at least the whole of the posh parts of North London, (laughs) are now coming for her. But there's a ray of light co-pilot, Matt Hancock being forced to eat a kangaroo's testicle. Could that be the event that brings our fractured nation together? I have it on good authority that a group of crocodiles, cockroaches and snakes are now consulting their lawyers about the inhumane treatment of being exposed in the name of entertainment to the British MP, Matt Hancock. (laughs) We are, of course, talking about I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, which Matt Hancock has astonishingly signed up to (laughs) going to Australia for hundreds of thousands of pounds to appear in a reality TV show, which includes the so-called Bush Tucker trials, in which contestants have to eat various weird things like eyeballs and testicles and even other parts of kangaroos that shall remain unmentioned or shall they? I mean, it's brought a lot of hilarity, but I think there's also genuine anger. Labrooks, the bookmakers, have Matt as odds-on favourite to do the most Bush Tucker trials in I'm a Celebrity history. Because they're awful and the audience will vote for him to do them, right? Yeah, they are absolutely excruciating. The trouble is he's such a deluded half-wit, Mr Hancock, our former Secretary of State for Health, that he will take himself being voted to eat multiple ostriches' anuses as a sign of his extraordinary popularity with the British public. I mean, 
I was actually thinking that when it was announced that, you know, this is, remember him standing there, Liam, at those Downing Street press conferences with the increasingly bizarre measures to which our fellow citizens were going to be exposed or indeed restricted in doing, while Matt was merrily conducting an affair in the office cupboard. Anyway, listen, we shouldn't waste time talking about this idiot. So much of the country is talking about it, though, and we and we try and see the funny side, as we so often do in Planet Normal. Crikey, we need it at the moment. But th- there is a really serious side here, isn't there? And I know you're really angry about this, and you wrote about it very powerfully in your Wednesday column, that this is a guy that imposed massive restrictions on people. This is a guy who put the so-called ring of steel around care homes and of course many of our elderly people were unfortunately uh, exposed to covid needlessly during the pandemic and now he's using that notoriety to make money for himself when he's being paid to be the mp for west suffolk doing this during parliamentary time and i think the conservative party rightly has withdrawn the whip from him and his own constituency party some members have said in no uncertain terms that if he wants to eat a kangaroo's penis, then that's fine with them. (laughs) That was the great reaction from Andy Drummond, the deputy chair of Hancock's local conservative association. So Andy said he was looking forward to seeing him eat a kangaroo's penis. And you can quote me on that. We had Alison from North Essex, didn't we? A a conservative grassroots activist. And she was brilliantly eloquent. And these rank and file Tories, they can turn a phrase, can't they? They can. I think it's almost worth revisiting Alison to hear hear her on Hancock in I'm a Celebrity. You'll have seen, Liam, actually, when Rishi Sunak was announced as the new Prime Minister and he, he was making his way along the Conservative MPs receiving line and there was Hancock bobbing up, you know, with his little sort of cheeky little meerkat grin. And Sunak, of course, turned away swiftly. And I think... Very elegantly blanked him. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely blanked him. (laughs) And the look on Matt Hancock's face when he blanked him, the sort of rictus grin was painting on, but you could see the fear in his eyes and the disappointment. It's like, oh my God, my political career is completely over. And you know that within minutes he was texting the producers of I'm a Celebrity, get me in the jungle now. I think far from being the the plan to reach out to the younger generations, as, as, as he put it, was actually realising that Rishi wasn't going to find even a tiny seat around the cabinet table for him. <laughs> I have to ask you, Alison, as a journalist, I have to ask you, what well, I imagine quite a few Planet Normal listeners will be thinking right now. And here it is. You ready? Yeah, go on. Would you go in the jungle? They asked me. (laughs) So what happened? It was when we were going on a family holiday and we were just getting aboard the plane and an email landed from my agent, announced it to my family, my nearest and dearest. Can you imagine their reaction, Liam? (laughs) (laughs) No blank way, right? Fill in the blank. Essentially, my part-time role as mother would have been cancelled. Indefinitely, if I'd agreed to go into the... Well, there's still time. There's still time. (laughs) I'm sure you'd you'd fare very well. No shower and no curling tongs and... Oh, imagine. (laughs) Imagine. 
without the weekly manicure. No, I think they've actually assembled a rather intriguing cast this year, including Boy George, which what really made me laugh was Boy George, I think, is going to be the highest paid ever I'm a celeb contestant. But George is a vegan, so we'll be unable to take part in the Bush Tucker trials. So that will be down to Matt. I wonder how many Matt will end up doing. But elsewhere, Liam, it's a pretty serious time, isn't it? Halloween and the witch hunt is in full cry. It is indeed. And I think your column and Phil Johnson's column in The Telegraph really were very powerful pieces of of writing with Phil saying, as we said at the top, that our migration system is broken and very few are honest enough to talk about it. But you were certainly talking about it. And I know you're pretty angry, aren't you, about how Suella Braverman's being treated, how a lot of the mainstream media are treating her, trying to push her out of office blaming her for everything when she's only been Home Secretary for five minutes and even for three of those five minutes in the middle. She wasn't actually Home Secretary. (laughs) And yet she is trying to come to terms with a very, very difficult, pretty much intractable problem. Thousands of people now entering the UK via small boats every year, risking their own lives, of course, but also putting enormous pressure on our systems Millions of pounds spent every day on hotel bills. Everyone in uproar. Our processing system slow to the point of being completely dysfunctional. And an awful lot of well-meaning people in what is a very, very tolerant country, one of the best countries in the world to be an immigrant in terms of opportunities, one of the countries that everyone wants to come to, second only in number to the United States itself, A lot of people are getting very angry now. Well, I think, isn't that the root of the absolute vitriol against Suella Braverman? Is she herself personifies the opportunity that immigrants can get in the UK, Liam? (laughs) Not to mention the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary. So the left are hoist by their own petard, aren't they, really? Because they're there going on about, you know, the absolute playing the game of identity politics, which Suella Braverman refuses to engage in. And my, do they hate her? Because we all know that as Reaper Hook, the Labour MP called Quasi Quateng, superficially black. Yeah, that was an outrageous comment. And she was rightly reprimanded by her party leadership in short order. Unbelievable, but I'm afraid that's the view of many of them on the opposition benches. And Suella Braverman, you know, basically brown people they like are the ones in the Marston Asylum Centre needing their help and their compassion. But instead, we've got a strong woman standing up in the Commons, speaking for millions of us. And she said, that is why some people want to see the end of me. The British people deserve to have a political party which is serious about the invasion of our South Coast. Let's stop pretending they're all refugees in distress. Illegal migration is out of control. Too many people are more interested in playing political parlour games rather than solving the problem. Let me just give you two lots of stats, Liam. Here we go. A Velma moment. (laughs) Oh, we haven't had that for a while. Scooby's back. Let's just have this, just two lots of Velma stats. So the UK is not unwelcoming. Since 2015, more than 380,000 asylum seekers and their families, primarily from Syria, Hong Kong, Afghanistan and Ukraine, have received refugee status. And then last week, 
in the Commons, giving evidence to a Home Affairs Select Committee, a, a guy called Dan O'Mahony, uh, the splendidly named Clandestine Channel Threat Commander. It's probably O'Mahony. O'Mahony, sorry. Yeah, that's generally how O'Mahony. You okay, O'Mahony. <laughs> so Mr. Man, I can't pronounce, but Clandestine Channel Threat Commander said we had seen an exponential rise in migration, which had been caused by about 10,000 adult men from Albania who've travelled to the UK this year in small boats. And the number represents, wait for this, Liam, 2% of all men aged between 20 and 40 in Albania. That's amazing. 2% of the entire adult male population of Albania is now in the United Kingdom. And Albania is a member of NATO, a stable country, that hasn't seen a war in 25 years. So let's just put that. Suella Braverman's been ticked off and patronised for saying the word invasion. The number of Albanian men who've come ashore this year, 2022, is around 12% of the full-time fighting strength of the entire British army. Okay. Are we allowed to raise any concerns about this? It seems to me that there are multiple strands going on here which we can tease out. But what I would say to you is, are civil servants and journalists, should they be allowed to drum out of office politicians whose policies they dislike? I think there's so much going on here. Let's just trade some stats. The numbers of people crossing in small boats They've absolutely mushroomed. In 2019, it was 1,900 for the whole year. As of the 30th of October this year, we're at 39,000. So from 1,900 to 39,000 and counting. This is a big time of year for the crossings before the weather gets really cold because a lot of people involved, they work as agricultural workers in France before trekking west to the UK. And I think there is a question to answer here, the way Suella Braverman is being hounded out of office. I think a lot of my fellow broadcasters and a lot of our fellow journalists in the round, they've kind of got a bloodlust. Absolutely. In their view, well, they have. They've drummed a prime minister out of office. Two. They've drummed another prime minister out of yeah. office. Now, of course, Boris Johnson made mistakes in many senses. He was the author of his own downfall. And Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng made mistakes, of course. But I think a lot of the market reaction to the mini budget, I've written and, and spoken about this in the past, was a kind of confluence of various global economic factors and the knowledge among traders that the British media would go absolutely nuts, setting up a sort of doom loop where people go short of certain currencies and assets types like gilts and then the media piles in and then you get a, a sort of downward spiral. So I think we need to keep talking about this issue. Rishi Sunak needs to back Suella Braverman because however distasteful it is to deal with this problem, the numbers that we've both cited are clear. You know my own background and my feelings about this. And just look at the cabinet look at the top of many institutions now yes of course there are still problems with racial discrimination of course there are there always will be you know morons and bigoted people out there but i think britain has a really good track record here we are not america by any stretch of the imagination and to say that it is xenophobic or racist to try and get your arms around this problem is just madness 
And yet for a lot of the broadcast media, that is the inference that they constantly put forward. And I think that's completely wrong. And you mentioned uh, the Labour front bench there. They know that a lot of their voters, they know that a lot of the Red Wall agree that this is a major, major problem. People who are relying more on government services, council housing, state education, state healthcare, they don't have recourse to private healthcare, private education that a lot of the chattering classes do. And they see this endless wave of people, many of whom aren't fleeing persecution at all, certainly not from Albania. They are a drain on the state. They may in the end turn out to be extremely effective citizens and, and pay their way, but you need the infrastructure in the interim to make that happen. And of course, many of them won't be. And we know that from police reports, that a lot of the migrants that we've seen have ended up getting involved in organised crime, drug running and people smuggling themselves. So it's right, I think, that the government's tackling this. And Rishi Sunak has kind of stacked the Home Office, if you like. He's got Swallow Braveman there to be his bad cop. He's also got Robert Jenrick as Minister of State, very, very close politician to Rishi Sunak. They're very old friends. They go back a long way sort of breathing down Swallow Braverman's neck if she does topple to step into the breach. But at this point, I think outside of the broadcast media, if she can survive, she's a very powerful woman. A lot of the public agree with her stance. And she is effectively, I think, Alison, the person who put Rishi Sunak in office. She is. The fact that she backed Sunak and not Boris is probably what made Boris think this isn't worth the candle. The fact that the European Research Group, of whom she is their champion at the top of the Conservative Party, then didn't back Penny Morden, meant that Sunak got a clear run. So I think if she can withstand it on a personal level, I think if the Prime Minister continues to back her, she does make just a little bit of headway with this almost intractable problem. I think a lot of the public, they won't shout about it, but they'll thank her. Absolutely, Liam. So it'd be very interesting to see if Sunak capitulates and fires her or encourages her to resign. Then, you know, we're going to be back into the Conservative Party chaos again. I think it's just very interesting to drill down into the data and what's going on, because the reason we can't just send these people back is because we have international obligations. But if we look at the figures, and these are the most recent figures, the United Kingdom accepted 76% of asylum claims in the last year, France 28%, Spain 11.3%, Germany 55.7%, and overall the EU accepted just 14%. Now I'm putting it to you that some of our working from home peloton riding civil servant class might not be in any hurry to enact the immigration policy of the democratically elected Tory government. But I think what is really interesting now is looking at why, what have we got to do to shift this? Now, there was this thing called the Modern Slavery Act that was introduced by Theresa May. It was a very well-intentioned piece of legislation, which is now being exploited by a large number of economic migrants who claim themselves to be victims of modern slavery. And the benchmark for a claim under that statute is set so low that any Tom, Dick or Abdul can come in or can certainly be put on the fast track to acceptance without any problem at all. 
You know, I was really upset thinking about this, Liam, because essentially a lot of these Albanian guys who are coming in, we know they are going straight to work for Albanian criminal gangs whose own trade is sex slaves and drugs. And these people are using the modern slavery act so they can get job opportunities in modern slavery. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. So I guess the question now, we know Suella Braverman is a lawyer. She's a former attorney general. She's saying she proposes to change the law to raise the threshold under the Modern Slavery Act. She wants to accelerate the process and prevent the exploitation of our laws. People are claiming asylum unfairly and unjustifiably. But make no mistake, co-pilot, this means in effect that the UK will abrogate commitments under various international conventions. And this is going to be one hell of a battle for her because lots of conservatives pay lip service to controlling immigration. But are they going to allow her to do this? She's right, Suella Braverman, isn't she, to say her opponents want to get rid of her. And I think now we are rapidly approaching the point where we are going to see, is the Conservative Party prepared to do these bold things in terms of our international commitments to grip the problem? These are extremely deep and difficult waters to wade through for the Conservative Party. On the other hand, we do have a class of civil servants who think their views are morally superior to the views of the elected politicians and the population as a whole. We do have an extremely opportunistic, zealous, liberal legal establishment that wants to make sure that efforts by the Conservatives to control our borders, an issue which comes up again and again and again in surveys of public opinion among ordinary people, that those efforts are foiled at every turn. So I think this is the fight of Rishi Sunak's premiership. I personally think that the economy will come right. I think there are signs now gas prices are falling. I think there are signs that supply chain pressures are easing. I'm not going to use the Norman Lamont phrase, I see green shoots. Oh, I just did (laughs) because that jinxes it. But I do think Rishi Sunak could be a lucky general in terms of the economy. And I think that In two weeks' time, when the autumn statement is made, I think the tax rises will be less than Treasury sources are currently briefing. I think that's a bit of a softening up exercise, Alison, you'll understand, Ah, to tell us it's going to be absolutely terrible in terms of tax rises. And when there are some tax rises, we think we've got off lightly. I do think the economy will come okay for Sunak and the country as a whole, but I think the really big fight he will have will be whether or not, as a kind of sophisticated, globalist, nice person in his own mind, somebody who a lot of people that don't vote Conservative quite like as a Conservative Prime Minister, has he got the stomach to really push through proper reforms to our immigration and asylum system so that we don't have, you know, 30, 40, 50, where does it end? 100,000 people coming over every year on inflatable rubber dinghies illegally. 
well said. And also it's about two and a half billion a year now, isn't it, on hotels, some of them four and three star hotels <laughs> for people complaining about the conditions in which they're kept having arrived here illegally, which doesn't go down very well with people struggling to afford the gas bill. I'm really interested, Liam, in what you've said about whether we're being softened up, because I've been slightly surprised in the last few days to see these very gloomy headlines. We've got to fill this 60 billion black hole. The trust escapade has left us in all this deepest doo-doo, as it were. Sorry, to use the, <laughs> the technical term. <laughs> to use the technical term. When you were at Oxford, they were always saying, weren't they, in your marvellous masters of economics, uh, the deepest doo-doo. But the things that she wanted to do didn't even happen, did they? I mean, we haven't even enacted the tax cuts that are supposed to have caused all the trouble. So I've been a bit cynical about this. I've been thinking, why are they saying, I mean, we seem to have gone from go for growth to tax people until the pips squeak. Are you saying that you don't think the tax rises will be as severe? Because I was wondering if they're going to do what they say they're going to do, then is a recession just around the corner? You're right, Alison, a big chunk of the trust quateng tax cuts hasn't even been enacted. And the increase in corporation tax, which trust wanted to freeze, that will go ahead from 19 to 25%. And also the cost of delivering that energy price cap, subsidised energy to firms and households until April, that's also likely to be less than was widely expected because gas prices have eased quite a lot in recent weeks because across Western Europe, gas storage facilities are full and it's been quite a mild winter so far. So gas prices have come down as well. So the amount of money the government has to pay to deliver gas and electricity with a certain price cap is much less. So I do think it's wrong to blame the hole in the public finances on Truss and Quateng. I do think that's too convenient. And I'd say also that a lot of the forecasts that are being put forward, they're taken as destiny forecasts aren't destiny, as Liz Truss said, and she was absolutely right to say that. They're not. There's every chance that we can get growth going. And with gas prices coming down and with government borrowing costs coming down, they're now back where they were roughly before the mini budget. Debt interest payments that the government has to make are reduced by tens of billions of pounds going forward. So I'm hopeful that the autumn statement on November the 17th, while it will be tough, while there will be some, not so much spending cuts, but slowdowns in the rates of increase of spending, and while the headlines will be very, very garish, I'm hoping they don't overdo the hair shirt because everything we know about how economics works tells me that if they squeeze too hard, they will push the economy into recession. We've got survey data out this week that showed our manufacturing sector is now at its lowest ebb since mid-2020 in the depths of lockdown. So we're on the brink of recession now. It would be wrong in my view to push the economy over the edge. I think we'd end up getting less tax revenue from those tax rises and so they'd be completely counterproductive. Quick yes or no answer. Are interest rates about to go up? They will go up today, I think, but I don't think they'll go up by as much as people are thinking. And it may be with gas prices easing and inflation starting to ease in the coming months that they peak at a lower level than previously thought. Well, forget the hair shirt, Halligan. It's so mild. I don't know what is the day when I have the annual autumn ritual of putting on the first pair of black opaque tights. (laughs) Well, haven't turned the heating on yet. Are you sleeping with the dog yet? (laughs) 
<laughs> sleeping. <laughs> My new lover is the electric blanket, Lorenzo. He's absolutely marvellous. I can't speak too highly of his warm and reassuring touch. Nigel Farage, this is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. Free speech has been back in the news, co-pilot, rarely goes away. Our guest on The Rocket this week is one of free speech's bravest champions. There was a huge row and protests at Cambridge University last week when Helen Joyce, the best-selling author of a book called Trans, took part in a debate at Gonville and Keyes College. Now, the master of Keyes spoke out against the event, emailing the entire student body and apologising for her staff hosting the hateful Helen Joyce. At the centre of this row and waging a heroic ongoing battle to get his university to behave like a university rather than a flock of sheep is Professor Arif Ahmed. Born in 1974 to a doctor and a nurse who came to the UK from India, Arif is a professor of philosophy and has been a fellow of Gonville and Keyes since 2015. His philosophical outlook is, I'm told, individualistic, atheistic and empiricist. In 2020, Arif led a famous charge against the university's plans for a new free speech policy, which he said would have required all of us to respect the opinions and identities of others, plans which Arif said offered practically endless scope for censorship. Arif successfully got the word respect changed to tolerate. In recognition of his work in defence of free speech and academic freedom, Professor Arif Ahmed was awarded an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours 2021 and the Trustees Award by Index on Censorship. It was Arif Ahmed who invited Helen Joyce to take part in that controversial debate at his Cambridge College. So I began by asking him, what happened next? Yes, so I invited, as you say, I invited Helen Joyce, who's a best-selling author. She's written a book that's very well received and she's always got something interesting to say. So, of course, I thought it could be constructive and useful to have a debate with people who disagree with her views, indeed with people who find her views extremely offensive and shocking. What happened was, after the invitations went out, the day after the invitations went out, there was immediately outrage from various groups within the university. There were students who were protesting it. There were various groups within the student community who thought that she shouldn't be given a platform and that it was unsafe for people at the university that someone like Helen Joyce was being allowed to speak. There was also, not only from students, I'm afraid, but also even from senior people in the university, letters circulated, which often contained material such as, we believe in the right to free speech, but, and then after the word but, there would be comments about how, for instance, it was unwise of me 
though they typically didn't name me, to platform this particular speaker on this particular debate in this particular place and so on. And sometimes also contain the ominous phrase, free speech is very good, but you need to use free speech wisely, which I sometimes think is code for you should only use free speech to defend the views that we agree with. Yes. So the event did go ahead. I read that you had a visit from a police officer who warned you about what to do if there was any violence. So what happened when Helen did turn up and spoke? What then happened? Were there protests in the room or outside? And you had to smuggle some students in, I believe. Yes, that's right. So with the smuggling in, what happened was there were some students, for good reason, thought that it would be a bad idea for them to be identified as even as attending this talk. But because they were so keen to come, they asked me to hide them within the college. So the college has various rooms adjoining the auditorium and they can be kept quite private. So I kept people in those rooms so they could come in unseen into the auditorium, wouldn't have to go past protesters, wouldn't have to be seen by staff or other students. So they wouldn't face the sort of ostracism and mistreatment that they feared, I'm afraid, with good reason. Obviously, we were prepared for the worst. And in the run up, I didn't know whether I would have to deal with, yeah, indeed with a violent protest or with some kind of protest within the room. But I knew that we'd taken what steps we could responsibly take in order to mitigate those risks. And how did it go off? I mean, Helen spoke and were there questions? Was there some acrimony? I mean, were there, was it a fair debate? Well, I mean, just in terms of how it went off, there's a couple of things. So one thing, of course, was the issue about the protests. There were protests outside. I've got no issue of that. People are free to protest whatever they like. So there were protests outside of the main college building and they were inaudible and they were entirely peaceful and fine as far as I know. There were also some people who managed to get into the sort of passageway nearby the building and there was some screaming and chanting outside. There were some people who banged on a fire door and I believe some people were somewhat intimidated by that. I had to turn the volume up on the mics. So we kept going. So in terms of the sort of logistics and the protests and handling them, we ignored it and we managed to get through, you know, despite the protests. My only regret is that, you know, the people who were outside protesting, you know, instead of protesting with drums, they should have been opposing her with arguments inside the hall rather than outside. And we could have had more of a discussion. So shockingly, the master of keys, Professor Pippa Rogerson, emailed all the students in the college rebuking staff for hosting the hateful author Helen Joyce. Professor Rogerson, writing alongside Dr Andrew Spencer, the college's senior tutor, said that while freedom of speech is a fundamental principle on some issues which affect our community, we cannot stay neutral. Professor Rogerson is technically your boss, Arif, and she's attacked your event. And whatever she may claim, it seems clear she is advocating censorship. What's your response to that? Well, I should say, because she is the master of the college, obviously there's a limit to what I can say in public. But one thing I will say is that I think senior officials, particularly people in charge of university, have a duty to maintain universities and colleges as places in which there can be free debate of important issues. And they need to be very mindful of the potentially chilling effect of statements that they make for and against a particular position in public, even if they assert themselves not to be speaking in the persona of whatever official role they happen to have. 
I think that Planet Normal listeners will be dismayed that one of the world's great universities is closing down the exchange of ideas or trying to. That's been going on in Cambridge for 800 years. I heard that tutors even opened a, a safe space welfare tea room during your event, blaming understandable hurt and anger for many students, staff and fellows at Keys. I mean, Arif, all that happened is they got an email invitation. How about not going to the event? for example. I mean, are these what people call snowflakes? It seems to me to be absolutely pathetic. Well, how about going to the event and actually have an argument with the person who's, who's talking, I would say. But I'm not going to get into comments about calling students snowflakes or anything like that, partly because I think actually the majority of students are fine and they've got no problem with this sort of thing and would be happy to come. I think there's a small minority, some of whom, you know, may well feel hurt or offended or shocked by these things. But there I think... Part of our responsibility as university educators is, I think, is to teach people when they come here that part of adult life is that you will meet people who have views that you disagree with, that you might find hurtful or shocking or offensive or disturbing. Part of living in an adult society is that you discuss with them and you argue with them. And you can realise that rational people might end up having disagreements even over fundamental issues. And that doesn't necessarily make you an evil person or a bad person. It doesn't remove your right to speak. But the only way forward through that is through discussion. And that can mean very often robust discussion, but I think it's really important that that remain open. So I think what troubled me most about that was the assumption that, you know, the natural or the best or the most obvious response or one response to people who find Helen Joyce's views hurtful is instead of going to argue with her, rather to retreat to somewhere else and try to ignore it as if it isn't happening. I'd just like to add, actually, I mean, one argument that I've heard about with regard to my college is that colleges in this university, in Cambridge University, and perhaps also in Oxford, are slightly different from just a university. They're supposed to be a home in somewhere where people live. And I've heard the argument that because it's a home, the balance that we strike between the welfare of students and intellectually challenge them has to be slightly different from the balance that we strike in other educational contexts. I can see that I can see that argument. I myself am skeptical of it because I think that, you know, even in a home, you know, if my children watch something on telly that I don't like, I just don't listen to it. And I just think the idea that it's doing people harm in any way, the fact that within a square mile of where you live, somebody else is talking to some somebody else about something that you don't like, that you don't have to hear or engage with or that you can ignore altogether. It's hard for me to see the root from that to any genuinely harmful effect that is being claimed. In all of these cases, if there is a risk of harm, the best mitigation is to have a rational discussion. So having what I would regard as a waiver that you sign when you start at university saying, you know, I accept that I will come across material that is disturbing and shocking, and I accept that that's part of my education, you know, could be useful in university life because it means nobody could be disciplined then for you know, disseminating that kind of material and nobody have, would have grounds of complaint being shown or be, you know, being taught legal material that they find distressing or shocking. Obviously, they could withdraw their consent, but that would mean withdrawing from the university altogether. Um, so that's a possibility. But I think that's one way, there are various other ways, but that's one way in which we could retain universities as the sort of place which, if they're not, they shouldn't exist really, which is a place where you really can discuss anything that's within the bounds of legality about philosophical questions, political questions and other things as a way of expanding people's horizons and teaching people, you know, all people that even their deepest beliefs might be wrong. 
You have written, it's hard to convey the reality and the extent of this fear which stalks the halls of academia. Is that fear which inevitably leads to self-censorship, is that being caused by the students, by the academics, the university authorities, or is it bullying by political activists? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's a combination of things. I would say, first of all, that the majority of students are not to blame or involved in this. Perhaps even the majority of academics are not either. In fact, I would I would be confident of that. I believe that it comes from a combination of things. So one thing is that there is a small number of activists, very, very strident activists in various directions, who don't seem to have any compunction in shouting people down and think it's perfectly fine to stop people from speaking and indeed perhaps to harass people out of their jobs. So some of the blame, I think, lies with the university, with some activists. Some of it lies, I think, with some university officials who are simply not doing their job, part of which I believe involves standing up to activism and defending principles of free speech. And some of it, I think, also lies with some administrative officials who are very keen, you know, for obvious reasons, to promote a university as a place of diversity and equality and so on. But sometimes they don't always think through the implications of their well-meaning initiatives. And when those mean involve the chilling of speech or the chilling of certain kinds of discussions, I think that's a very serious matter. Arif, do you feel intimidated and how safe do you think your job is? I don't feel intimidated. If they want to have a go at me, they're welcome to try. I think the people who are really brave and who are being most intimidated are the students here. Those are the ones who are the most vulnerable. They're the ones who in many ways have got the most to lose. They fear mistreatment by senior figures. They fear social ostracism. In some cases, no doubt, they even fear physical violence. But those are the ones, I think, who are the bravest and who have the most right to feel frightened. You don't think the college could try and force you out? Well, they're welcome to try. I don't believe that they could. No, the law protects my employment, just like the law protected this event. So even if the college has tried to prevent this event from going ahead, our college policy on free speech would have protected me. So I could have had it. I don't think they would want to. I don't think that's their intention. And actually, I think many senior officials are actually well-meaning. They are well-intentioned. They're not deliberately trying to suppress free speech. It's simply that they have either a balance of priorities where they put certain kinds of welfare above the sort of robust intellectual exchange that I value and think ought to be valued. Or in other cases, they haven't actually thought through the consequences of what they're doing. But in many cases, they are well-meaning and th- these are well-intentioned. I don't believe a lot of the time that there's some kind of you know, sinister woke plot to shut me down or anything like that. That's not the situation. The Telegraph this week's had a story that college alumni are cancelling their donations, writing keys out of their wills. I can easily imagine that Cambridge graduates of my generation are pretty disgusted by this display of intellectual cowardice. Do you think the reaction of alumni and adverse publicity could have some helpful impact? I think alumni have every right to express their feelings on this matter, which I think is obviously something of great importance. And I do believe that the publicity around this may well help some officials in the university here and other universities to recognise the depth and extent of feeling, not just amongst alumni, but amongst the public on this. If you're in a university, sometimes you can end up in a kind of a bubble because often the views of people at universities are quite different from those in the rest of the country. And if you spend your life working in a university, it's easy sometimes to get isolated in the sense that you feel your views are representative of the mainstream when in fact they're not. And the mainstream, you know, thinks that Helen Joyce has every right to say what she thinks. And I don't know how popular her views are in the mainstream, but she's obviously had huge mainstream influence. And that's why her views deserve to be discussed. So being exposed to that and seeing what the mainstream thinks, I think, you know, could be a salutary influence on the sector. 
Now, it used to be, Arif, that all the righteous disapproval, the censorship came from the horrible right. Now it's the left that are the Puritans and witch finders, and it's the conservatives who are fighting to save free speech. How do you explain that extraordinary turnaround? Well, I think part of it, I mean, certainly within a sort of university context, but perhaps also within other professional contexts, part of the explanation, I think, has got to be demographic. So in a university context, there's a huge majority of people whose views are more to the left. And so in a way, it's kind of easier to shut down a minority. That might be part of the explanation. But the other thing I would say is that those on the right, you know, should not deceive ourselves that this instinct only exists on the left because it exists on the right as well and could just as easily be activated if things shift the other way. You know, we shouldn't forget things like McCarthyism, for instance. And so I think that there are people on both sides who quite rightly feel that their speech is being suppressed or compromised. Having said that, I'm afraid it is true at the moment that preponderantly the problems are coming from the left. Now, the, apart from the demographic speculation that I made, I'm not entirely sure what the reason for that is. Part of it might also be philosophical. Ultimately, I think the thing to emphasise is that the people who are most benefited by freedom of speech always are the weakest, the most vulnerable and the most marginalised. And we have to hold on to that principle because it's when you repress free speech, the people who benefit are the powerful, not the marginalised. You've said that universities now prefer to see themselves as social justice factories rather than seats of learning. In fact, we see people, don't we, throughout the state sector having to sign up for training in critical race theory. There was an extraordinary interview on GB News, actually, Andrew Doyle interviewed a therapist from the Tavistock Centre who had just objected to signing up to something saying that whiteness meant racism. I mean, this seems to be absolutely rampant throughout the institutions, even though we've had an, a Conservative government for 12 years. What hope is there, do you think, of weeding out this, I mean, as I see it, pernicious ideology from our institutions? Yeah, I think it's important to be very careful about this. And the one thing I would say is that I believe, for instance, in universities, in complete freedom and autonomy of what you teach. And I think it would be a mistake you know, to have direct restrictions on universities, for instance, from teaching critical race theory as part of a curriculum. Sorry, what about actually telling members of staff that if they don't sign up to this thing, then they can't be employed? So I think there, there are much more serious issues. So for instance, just as you say, we have, you know, various kinds of training programs, for instance, anti-racism training and other kinds of things that are being proposed, often being proposed as compulsory, for instance, for students and sometimes perhaps even for staff in some parts of the sector. And I think there the problem is that, just as you say, they are ideologically oriented. So that staff are being taught, for instance, that if you're white, you have to accept, you know, you're complicit in white hegemony and you have to accept your guilt as a way of coming to terms with that. Now, that seems to me wrong. It seems to be uh, an abuse of the power of the sector. And it seems to be a misconception of what education is for. So that, I think, has to be stamped out. In universities, I think one way in which that can be done is by signing up to a kind of principle of institutional neutrality. So they have this at the University of Chicago, for instance, where institutions are completely neutral and they themselves can't, as institutions, and this will also mean via training, take a stance on any particular political issue if they can avoid doing so. More broadly, I think it might be necessary for there to be more legislative protections on freedom of speech. And part of this, I think, comes down to the issue there is ultimately sometimes a philosophical clash between the priority of freedom of speech and the priority of other kinds of welfare and equality issues. And we have to make a decision when it comes to the application of things like the Equality Act 2010, for instance, the extent to which legal free speech has to be allowed compatibly with the provisions in the Equality Act, you know, with regards to diversity and equality. 
Oxford University's Vice Chancellor, Professor Dame Louise Richardson, has just used the matriculation ceremonies to tell every new student at Oxford that they must hear the other side of arguments and prepare to be offended. Would you like to see Cambridge's new Vice Chancellor issue a similar rallying call for freedom? Yeah, I think Louis Richard's comments were excellent. And the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge, Anthony Freeling, made some, I thought, very helpful comments in a newspaper interview recently. I would add, though, that more generally, I think because when you start at university, you are to some extent open to having your expectations reset, it could be a good idea to have as part of Freshers' Week for the start of your time at university saying, look, when now you're here, you're adults, it's not school anymore, you have to make your own mind up about things, and you'll come across people who have views you find shocking and offensive and disturbing. And the way to engage with them at university is not to shut them down and not to hide from them, not to be concerned about the harm that they may do you in general, but to engage with them and to have discussions. And we would encourage you to do as much of that as possible. And saying something like that, without defending any particular view, but making a, a sort of second order comment like that from an official perspective at the start of the university to all students, whether it comes from the vice chancellor, or whether it comes from, for instance, a senior tutor or a tutor or some other sort of more sort of low level body, but with an official imprimatur, I think could be extremely helpful. Now, finally, on Planet Normal, we like to know a bit about how our distinguished guests became who they are today. I'm just going to tell listeners because there's a lovely story. You'll probably be a bit embarrassed about this. But on Twitter, I came across a lovely woman called Sabina, who every day posts pictures of flowers from her conservatory and garden. And we got to know each other a bit. And then when you were in the news, standing up for free speech at Cambridge, Sabina says, that's my son. (laughs) So... Um, Arif, your late father and your mother were from southern India. He was a doctor. She was a nurse. I believe they came over to England in 1972 and settled in Somerset. I wanted to ask you, Arif, slightly a different topic. We have just got a new prime minister whose background is not that dissimilar to your own. Rishi Sunak's parents also came over from India. His dad was a GP, mum was a pharmacist. Did it mean anything to you to see a British Indian assume that high position? And how does it make you feel with regard to racism and anything you may have encountered in your life? Oh, well, first thing, of course, I would say that you know I've been extremely fortunate. So there are many people who come from immigrant backgrounds who have been less fortunate than me. You know, I was very lucky to have such a such an excellent and supportive family. And hi, mom, if you're listening, thanks for that. Um, I definitely did experience racism of various sorts when I was younger. The one thing that I found difficult in terms of racism more recently is being made aware of it. I want to live in a country where the least important thing about me is my race. So being in a context where people are drawing attention to it, even if it's in a way that they think is benign, is something that I personally, I won't speak for others, that I personally find somewhat objectionable. And making a massive thing about race, as various groups are at the moment, I think is potentially inflammatory, but in any case, I don't think is always productive. In terms of Rishi Sunak, yeah, of course, I'm delighted that he's he's got to the position that he has, and I wish him all the, all the best, obviously, in, in what he does. I would say that racism has definitely, you know, the problem has definitely improved since the 1980s when I was growing up. Things are definitely much better in this country, and I think, you know, it's certainly in my experience. So I think we can't pretend that the problems around race now are the same as they were in the 1980s and the 1990s. But of course, I can, you know, I can only speak about my own experience from that. Well, I'd like to thank you, Professor Arif Ahmed, for being a superb 
champion of free speech. More power to your pen and your voice. And John Stuart Mill would be very proud of you. Thank you so much, Alison. It was lovely talking to you. I think that's a very important interview, Alison, about a very important event at Gonville and Keats College, Cambridge. And I sincerely hope that that interview resonates widely, not least across the academic world, because I think Dr. Ari Famed has been courageous and he deserves a huge amount of credit and indeed support. The full-length version of the interview with Professor Arif Ahmed is available to Telegraph subscribers. We will be putting a link to that interview in the show notes below. What I want to know, co-pilot, is why the production team hasn't made available a safe space welfare tea room for me when I have to deal with you. I mean, that's the... (laughs) It's only a matter of time. (laughs) (laughs) It was a great pleasure to interview Arif. His mother, Sabina, who has become a friend, said he doesn't like me bragging about him. He did come from a pretty regular background. His parents were immigrants. He got into Oxford to read maths age 17. Liam, you'll know. That means he is a very impressive person and he has channeled that particular brilliance into this very, very crucial cause, I think, at this moment in our History. I suspect you and I and Planet Normal listeners will find it slightly surreal that a Cambridge Don was having to hide students in rooms off the main room where a debate with an author was about to take place. It's complete madness. And I think a lot of academics need to think very deeply about why they are academics. I understand there's career risk. I understand that Quite a lot of people go into academia because they want a quiet life. But what is university tenure for if it is not for being able to say what you think within the law? Now on to our listener emails. Your message is sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love to read your thoughts and we learn a huge amount from you. And and here's a case in point, Liam. This is from Debbie, not her real name. Debbie is a counsellor in the Midlands writing to us following the furore over Suella Braverman. Debbie says, a fellow counsellor here is being investigated for sharing information on the 150 plus migrants who are currently housed at the four star blank blank hotel. Counsellors were told we couldn't share any details on the numbers, ethnicities, gender, ages or language classes the migrants were receiving or, you're going to love this co-pilot, the GP provision. The migrants get twice weekly surgeries at their hotel. I think we can have a Planet Normal coach trip to Calais, Liam, where we can rent a dinghy. And listeners to Planet Normal who haven't been unable to access their GP might like to cross the channel to see if they can get one that way. Anyway, Debbie continues, the CEO and monitoring officer at the town hall put a classified sensitive warning on all our briefings when the migrants first arrived in the summer. They said this order had come directly from the Home Office. After we protested, that classified sensitive notice has been removed and now all asylum seeker briefings are marked confidential and councillors are still following the order not to share any details with the public. I have fought it 
but they are trying to force out those of us who object. It is shocking. It certainly is. Here's one from Mark. Alison and Liam. I'm Mark and I live in the northwest of England. I'm a working class Conservative Party member and a long time Planet Normal listener, quite right too. I'm culturally and socially a Conservative, says Mark, but a little to the left on economics, so I'd class myself as a one nation Tory. I was previously regional coordinator for the SDP. I'm an electrical technician building electrical distribution systems by day and an open university economics and business student by night. Clever lad. My course is at a fascinating moment because the module I'm doing is called Running the Economy. We're studying the 2007-8 crash and the seeds of that crisis are still present, in my view, in the problems we have today. With our current account deficits, it's no wonder Liz Trust couldn't borrow to finance tax cuts, which was a stupid idea anyway. And it was refreshing last week to hear fellow Planet Normal listener Alison, with one L, talk about how my party must focus on the young. This is absolutely necessary and 100% true. Because it seems the Tory party's run for a gerontocracy and we've thrown the young under a bus. It was a manifesto promise, whatever they're worth, in 2019 to move from Greenbelt to zoning. We are in the current mess we are because the elephant in the room is always the cost of housing. We must defeat the NIMBYs and maybe lose a few seats to ensure our party's survival. We'd also be in a better position if we'd been like the French and taken a bigger stake in building nuclear power 20 or 30 years ago. I believe there's still room to do that by borrowing now to invest and we have big opportunities with Rolls-Royce small modular nuclear reactors which I'm told take only a few years to build once permission is granted. Keep going, says Mark, with the sweet haven of logic, the rocket of right thinking, all the best. That's great email, Mark. So glad to have clever younger listeners. Liam, we must really talk more. You're our country's leading expert on housing, but I'm also hearing a lot from people about the insane situation with student rentals. Absolutely appalling. We must definitely cover that in future weeks. Thea says, if Sunak fires Suella, he is finished and so are the Tories. She should then join Farage's party. Now, we've had some wonderful reaction, Liam, to my Matt Hancock piece. Andrew says, Hancock is an advert for all that is best about the current British leadership. Being competent, blag your way to the top without any real expertise. Preach to others about what one must do. Ignore that guidance yourself. Get caught out and deny any wrongdoing. Only when it is clear your mates won't back you up, come clean. Run away without penalty. Then try and trouser whatever publicly related funds you can to pad out your bank balance while admitting no blame or shame. Make it clear that lessons will be learned. If all else fails, escape to TV. It's what makes the modern UK. <laughs> Charlie's sounds a bit more of an angry note, Liam, which we should bear in mind as we laugh at the idea of Hancock going into the celebrity jungle. This is the man who stole two years of our lives, ruined our kids' education, denied us the right to say goodbye to loved ones and destroyed the economy. It's not even funny, Alison. I just can't laugh this off. He is puke-inducing. Huge amount of reaction to the Suella Braverman. Rolango says, character assassination is now the left's best weapon. It doesn't matter that Biden, Starmer, etc. are awful candidates. 
as long as they can blacken the reputation of opponents. Suella is going to be brought down by the usual mix of -of out-of-context quotes, lies, and the general accusation of being unkind, as well as the usual racist and sexist jibes that the left loves to use. And Tories will stand by and let her be ripped to shreds without defending her. And some moronic limp Tories will even appear to support the accusations. And Gwilym says, I like this one, I'm 100% behind Braverman. Such a shame we don't have yet more braver men. Very good, Gwilym. And on that wordplay bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason for you. It's email of the week. It's my turn, and I think the email of the week and the rarest rocking horse poo <laughs> Planet Normal mug should go to Mark, who's doing his open university course. So when you're studying away, Mark, you can make tea <laughs> which is much more expensive than it was this time last year, in your Planet Normal mug. And you can gaze at the faces of both co-pilots. Make of that what you will. If you enjoy Planet Normal, which we absolutely jolly well hope you do, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does help others to find the podcast so the fantastic Planet Normal family can grow. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bajard, Elliot Lampitz, and our editor, Zoe Hitch, who's away for a few weeks, but we send her all the very best. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.